welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And Annie, I miss your face. I know. It's been literally a month since I've seen you in person, maybe longer. We had, for those that don't follow my (laughs) sickness expose (laughs) that I've been putting on Instagram, I was down with COVID for about two, two and a half weeks. And then I took a little tumble, threw my back out for the first time ever. So if you listened to last episode, we talked about the fact I got a new mattress. I have never been more thankful. (laughs) (laughs) We were actually going to do an in-person recording. We were so excited. And Elise texted me. I threw my back out. I was like, good excuse. I'm coming over. And she's like, no, I cannot move. I was like, oh, no. And I was worried. You're a trooper for even recording tonight. Well, this was my first time. I told Annie in text that I was really feeling for people that had chronic back pain because I've never really had anything like this happen before. And people are not kidding. You can't move. So I'm sitting here with... um, (laughs) (laughs) It looks like I'm wearing a diaper. I'm so glad we're not doing video. But I don't care. Wrap around me and... Biggest pillow you've ever seen. It's a lot. It's a lot. But at least you feel supported. (laughs) You're having some heat on your back. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, so of course, as soon as the bruising went down a little bit from the tumble, um, Annie, I did a thing. I went to go get a massage, and right next to the little Thai massage place that I went to was Bath and Body Works. Oh. And I don't know if you're obsessed with fall scents as much as I am, but they had their Halloween collection out. Already. Okay, I'm going to make a run to Bath and Body Works then because I am obsessed. That's just the first chapter of fall is that pumpkin spice smell. I cannot wait for it. It's so close to spooky season. Well, I'm very glad you're saying this because I bought out the store. <laughs> and I have stuff for you because I figured we needed spooky little things for our podcasting space. So, like they say on Shit's Creek, it's it's a write-off, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I I got us all the stuff, and then they had a candle that was called Ghoul Friends, and I was like, oh, that's so cute for our little podcast friendship we have, even though I can't yes. see you because I keep trying to, you know, off myself on accident. Good grief. <laughs> it's It's been a few weeks, but we're going to be back in action together. We're going to get rid of this stupid Zoom recording that we've been doing lately Mm -hmm. and we will be back together very very soon but speaking of spooky things and things disturbing i want to give a huge warning before i go into this episode this case is not only wildly frustrating with the judicial system but it's also incredibly gruesome and we're going to be talking about sexual assault and torture of course i'm not going to go into it in too much detail but I will put in the show notes the timestamps for the times I do talk about both of those things for those that need to skip over them. However, if you are in a place to listen, I think that why this story is heartbreaking, all the stories we cover are heartbreaking, but this is a survivor story, and it's the unbelievable survival story of a 15-year-old girl named Mary Vincent. So I hope if you're in a position where you are able to listen, it really adds to her bravery hearing everything that she actually went through. Mary Vincent was born in 1963. She was the middle child and had six brothers and sisters, so big family. She enjoyed competitive dancing and was incredibly talented at it. A lot of her coaches even thought that would be a career of hers. Now, Mary's parents were described as incredibly strict, but it seemed like tension in the home really started to escalate 
when they started talking about divorce. So it just became a hard time, not only for the parents, but for the kids. And this I read in a couple different sources that really stuck out to me. But as this tension was escalating, Mary decided at the very young age of 15 to run away because one of her sisters told her, dad was coming home with one of his migraines and he was mad at her. You better run. Now, to me, that puts up some big warning bells of what was going on in that home. Yeah. Like, was there some physical abuse from the dad? I'm not sure. I didn't find that in any article. And Mm -hmm. um, because this is a survivor story, Mary has never said that in any of the interviews that I watched either. Okay. So it could have just been kids, you know, trying to scare the heck out of each other. And maybe he was just going to be in a bad mood. Yeah. And I doubt the daughter really meant run away, but who knows? Well, run away she did. She left her home in Las Vegas and headed to California. Obviously, life on the streets is not easy, as you can imagine. And as a 15-year-old. Yeah. And from all accounts, this is a girl that grew up going to dance classes and and kind of having this strict parental system. So she probably wasn't street savvy, to say the very Mm -hmm. least. She slept on the streets or in unlocked vehicles before finally making her way to her grandfather's home in Berkeley, California. Although it was not too long before Mary decided she had had enough about that, she was feeling homesick and decided to head back to Las Vegas. I don't know exactly what her parents were doing at this time. Like we said before, that comment from her sister kind of sketched me out a bit. I also did not find any reports of her being missing. That seems very strange to me. Like, were they concerned Mm -hmm. about her or did they just kind of chalk it up to teenage rebellion and at least they knew she was with her grandpa i also question why didn't the grandfather try to drive her home why didn't her parents just come pick her up if they knew where she was again we don't want to ever place blame anywhere besides the perpetrator but it just seems so strange to me because i know my family and and bless them for this would be out searching for me if at 15 i was gone for months on end that is strange and you said this took place in the 60s 70s 70s So that kind of also can explain a little bit because the news articles from the 70s are not the greatest. We learned that in our research. It's a lot of piecing things together. So we'll give her family the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, it could just be that it wasn't reported. And there is a lot of privacy that Mary goes into later in life. So those are things that just might not have been disclosed to the public. So let's, like you said, give benefit of the doubt. But either way, she wanted to head home. She was homesick. So she made a sign that just said headed south and decided to hitchhike home. I want to point out that this is the 70s. We all know the dangers of hitchhiking nowadays, but at the time, it was very, very common to hitchhike to get from one place to another. And Annie, you are becoming all too familiar with my rabbit holes. I do research and then I go off researching other things in history. And this is the same because I'm thinking I would never hitchhike, but we'll get to that later. But Mm -hmm. I had to do a little investigating into hitchhiking in general. What did you find? <laughs> what did you find? Hit us, hit us with some stats. <laughs> so hitchhiking actually came about during the Great Depression for obvious reasons. There was a lack of motor vehicles, a lack of money for gas, necessities, all of that. So that's where hitchhiking kind of started, just out of necessity. Then it was actually somewhat outlawed in California in 1959 when vehicle code 21957, I'm never going to remember that, was passed. (laughs) And it basically said that no person shall stand in a roadway for the purpose of soliciting a ride from the driver of any vehicle. However, that doesn't make it explicitly illegal to hitchhike, just that you couldn't do it on the road. You had to do it at a truck stop or a rest stop. 
just couldn't be standing on the road. So like I said, we're in the 70s. This was very, very common mode of transportation at the time. But I have to ask, have you ever hitchhiked? I have in Panama City in spring break and I did get arrested. What? Well, I didn't get arrested, but we got pulled over. And this cop was like, "You, this is so dumb of you. And I was like, I'm fine. Like, it's it's fine. But it kind of brings up, have you ever hitchhiked before I bring up this other point? Oh, no. You have got to tell this story. <laughs> so I'm walking, trying to get on the Panama City Strip. That was like the place to go for Indiana kids on spring break. And I have my thumb out. And this car pulls over. I get into his car. I'm like recording everything on this little camera that I brought with me trying to play like a Project X style movie. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, we're getting pulled over. And the guy's like, this is your fault. I was like, no, it's not. And the cop pulls us over and he's like, get out of the car. Like, you're not, you're not getting in the car with this guy. Thank God for that. I could arrest you. I was like, no, you can't. And then I realized, yes, you can. (laughs) And he he was actually really nice and helps me. And I did end up getting me back to my hotel. Uh, Mom, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I don't think I've ever told her that. But all my friends from good old IU, they remember that story. Annie, you could have (laughs) died. But now here's my thought with Ubers and Lyfts. Like in 10 years, are we going to be like, oh my gosh, remember how we used to get into cars with strangers? There's still some level of safety precautions on those apps, though. True, true. Especially nowadays, they've gotten better. But Well, (laughs) I had to ask Blake about this too. Now we're really going off on a different tailspin (laughs) here. But I was like, Blake, have you ever hitchhiked? And do you know what he told me? (laughs) I bet he has. Yeah. If people don't know, my roommate was on The Bachelorette. And it was shortly after his time on the show. And he went to a Jason Aldean concert and they had a party bus, the whole thing. Well, the party bus breaks down and he decides people might recognize me. I think he was kind of feeling himself (laughs) at this time, maybe had one too many cocktails. And he's standing on the side of the road and these women pull over because they did end up recognizing him. They're like, Blake? Oh, my God. And so he went, him and his manager and another friend of them all load up in this vehicle with these Bachelor <laughs> fans and and got him to where he needed to go. But I was like, of course you would, Blake. <laughs> Use your 15 minutes of fame to, to get a safe ride. <laughs> um, no, I've never intentionally hitchhiked. And like you said, I, I kind of hope my parents aren't listening to this episode. But when I lived in North Dakota, obviously it's not known for being the warmest place on the planet. So my car ran out of gas, which I take full responsibility for. I just didn't, wasn't paying attention, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, without hesitation, got into a car with an older gentleman who offered to drive me the couple miles back into town so I could get gas. And thankfully, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. But thinking back on it now, it's like, how am I still here after all these stupid decisions I made in my 20s? Oh, my gosh. So many. So many. Yeah. We won't go into all of them here because I don't really want to shame myself that much. But <laughs> it's kind of interesting because this ties back to Mary. I looked at this guy that picked me up and I thought, he looks like someone's grandpa. He's not going to be harmful. And Mary did the same exact thing. Mary also thought she could trust the man who pulled up beside her and some fellow hitchhikers in a blue van and offered her a ride because, in her words, he looked like someone's grandpa. However, even though he was driving an empty van when the other hitchhikers headed to get into it, he stopped them, saying that he didn't have room for anyone but Mary. Oh, that's a little concerning. Yeah. And it was concerning to the other hitchhikers, too. It obviously set off alarm bells, and they warned Mary there's no way this guy had good intentions or he'd let all of them into the car because he clearly had enough room for them. But again, Mary, an inexperienced, not street-savvy 15-year-old, 
wasn't probably hyper aware of the dangers around her and she was desperate to get home, so she climbed on into the passenger seat. Mary and the driver seemed to have pretty polite conversation at the start, but Mary was getting very tired. And I'm going to keep harping on her age here because I think it's so easy to look at some of her choices through the lens of our age and experience and go, Mary, what the heck were you thinking? Getting in the car with him and then dozing off. I kind of want to go into mom mode for Mary and like Mm -hmm. discipline her with words. Obviously, falling asleep in a car with a stranger makes you even more vulnerable than you already are. But listeners, please keep in mind, she is 15 years old. And hopefully, at this point, she is unaware to most of the dangers of the world around her. But she wouldn't stay unaware for long because when Mary woke up, she realized, wait a minute, she's looking out the window and all of these signs that she's passing, she's realizing we are now going in the wrong direction. Oh, no. Again, she was headed south to California and all of a sudden they are headed north. She immediately feels like she is in a very bad situation. She starts yelling at the driver, you're going the wrong direction. And funny enough, he just starts apologizing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I must have gotten confused. I'll just pull over and we'll turn around. But she's still feeling kind of sketch about it. We were going in the right direction. Then I fall asleep and now we're going in the wrong direction. Her bells are starting to go off a little bit. And we always talk about a woman's intuition. Even at 15, you have it then. She probably was just like, this feels wrong. Absolutely. I mean, you got, you got to go with that gut feeling. So he proceeds to pull over like he said he was going to, but on a very deserted road. And Mary notices, you know, she's kind of taking in her surroundings. And she looks down and happens to notice that her shoelace is untied. And thinking very quickly, decides that if she's going to have to possibly outrun this guy, she needs to get outside and bend over and tie her shoes reasonable thought. So she opens the passenger door, bends down to tie her shoelace, and that's when a sledgehammer comes down over her head. Oh my gosh. He had been planning to to pick up a hitchhiker then. This is not a random. I'm going to go on with the story and then I want to go back to that because I want to hear your thoughts on that because I'm still a little bit undecided. So who the hell was this driver who is clearly not someone's sweet old grandpa? Well, he was Lawrence Bernard Singleton, a 51-year-old man who I agree with Mary, looked a lot older than his years, probably due to his issues with alcohol. He was born July 28th, 1927, and really not much is known about his early life. You know me, I like to dig into the perpetrator's life as much as possible, try to figure out why. But with him, I just, I couldn't find anything. Again, it was 1927, so that makes sense. He worked as a merchant seaman, and like I said before, I like to put back a drink or 10 or 20. In fact, he was known to sometimes consume a whole fifth of vodka a day, Ooh. which is a heavy drinker by anyone's standards. <laughs> was this the first time that he had attacked a woman? As far as we know, it was. But it's pretty hard to believe when you hear what Lawrence or Larry, as I'm going to call him for the rest of this episode, because that is what he went by. When you know what he went on to do, it's very difficult to believe that this is his first and only attack. Maybe his only attack that's been proven to be linked to him, something like that. Yeah. My gut is telling me that there's probably a long history that nobody knows about, but I could be wrong. And I've been wrong before. Misled. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's right. On this podcast, we're not wrong. We're misled. So Larry knocks Mary unconscious with the sledgehammer. He then strips her of her clothes and ties her up in the back of his van. He sexually assaulted Mary repeatedly throughout the night. She estimates at least six times. He then fell asleep. She's tied up. So she was unable to get away and obviously scared for her life. 
I watched an interview with Mary for an A&E episode of I Survived where she states, I wanted to die. That was the worst feeling I've ever felt. That's all I was thinking. Please, God, kill me now. I can't handle it. She begged Larry to set her free, promising him she wouldn't tell anyone and asking him repeatedly why. To which he never responded to her, just kept the sexual assaults going throughout the entire night into the next morning. As the sun began to rise, Larry pulled Mary from the vehicle, still naked and bleeding. He then said to her, you want to be set free? I will set you free. To that, he pulled an axe from his toolbox. And this part is going to get difficult, even more difficult. So bear with me here. He brought up Mary's arm and brought the axe down onto it. The first swing she remembers, she was holding onto his arm incredibly tightly to defend herself. But then all of a sudden she got really confused of like, wait, I'm holding on to him, but why am I feeling like I'm falling? It is because he had completely severed her arm from below the elbow. I am speechless right now. I was like, there's no way he just chopped her arm off. And he did. Oh, this poor girl. So she's falling back. I mean, I'm sure she's in some amount of shock just at like, what the hell is happening? And two, bodily shock of what just happened to her. She falls to the ground, still kind of unaware of what's happening, really. And of course, she is in a mass amount of pain, pain hopefully neither of us will ever be able to comprehend, and she is bleeding profusely. Larry then proceeds to do the same to Mary's right arm. Oh my gosh. Mary is now armless from the elbows down in a pool of blood, and she recalls seeing Larry sort of shaking his arm repeatedly. And I wish you guys could see what I'm doing because I'm, I'm recreating what she shared in the interview, almost like as if you had something was annoying you, like a sleeve or something, and you're just trying to shake it off. And then Mary realizes what he's trying to shake off is her left hand that was grabbing onto him was still attached and clinging to his arm. I'm not a doctor. So I don't know what medical terminology or what goes into that, but can you even imagine you're lying there, your arms have just been amputated off your body, and you are watching somehow your hand is still attached to your attacker, and he's just flicking it off like it's discarded trash. Right. I mean, and to go back to her age at 15, like you have your whole life ahead of you. And then to have this drastic turn of events. To your point about the arm, I wonder if it was a nerve or something that was just kind of in shock. You mentioned her body was definitely going through shock. So this happened before her eyes, that poor thing. Just a few feet away. And again, I don't know the medical terminology of how this could happen, but to me it does. Like you said, it makes sense that if she was in this fight or flight adrenaline mode mm -hmm. and is grabbing onto him, that maybe those nerves are still kind of firing even after being removed. So I'm not a doctor, but I just, the image of that is, is haunting. It's incomprehensible that not only the physical pain that she must have been going through, but the psychological and visual torture that this woman went through. I can't. I just, I can't. Well, Mary decided to play dead. She decided to remain as quiet as possible, which I do not know how the heck she, one, thought of this to do this, and two, was even capable of that. To be quiet and remain still while your body is just bleeding out. I, I, ugh, she's a brave young girl. She is. It's a fight or flight mechanism. There has to be a third one in there that just like you calm yourself down. I actually know this. Thank you, therapy. It's fight, flight, uh, faint, appease. Wait, hold on. Flight, fight, 
faint, appease, and then there's a fifth one. Okay, so maybe she was like the faint and almost appeased to be like, look, you're getting what you want. Maybe. And just like, let me be now. Interesting. I gotta remember the fifth one. So she's playing dead. And she's hoping that Larry is just going to leave her there and then maybe she can get some help. But, of course, Larry, being the douche canoe that he is, decides to start dragging her body. And at this point, she is still staying quiet, pretending that she is unconscious, even though she is awake for all of this. He dragged her body to the edge of a 30-foot cliff. He then pushed her naked, bleeding body off the cliff 30 feet down Now, the fall somehow did not kill Mary, but it did break four of her ribs, and Larry just drives away, leaving her for dead. Or perhaps he already thought she was dead. I don't know. But he drives away nonetheless. Now, I had to go on another tangent because I did not understand how any of this was even medically possible. And through all the research, I'm going to go through a little bit of it. But it's not. It's like none of this is humanly possible. Wondering how much blood she lost from both her arms being cut off that way. I'm going to tell you. So how the heck did one, she stay awake during all of this? How isn't she in shock or passing out from loss of blood or from the fall off a 30-foot cliff? And I don't know if it was God or the universe or whatever the heck you want to call it. Must have been looking out for Mary because I want to point out an article I found on securitymagazine.com that stated that severing the brachial brachial artery, basically the artery that runs along the inside of your arms, could cause you to lose consciousness in as little as 15 seconds and if not treated, could lead to death from blood loss in 90 seconds. That's on one arm. She has two severed arms. And now four broken ribs, plus I can't imagine how many contusions and bruises and scrapes she has from the fall. And somehow she's still conscious. I can't even picture that. The blood loss, the trauma, the bruising, the pain she's in, and just the stress of like, what is happening? What is happening? You know, I can't even put myself in that position. It's amazing she survived it. Oh, absolutely. It's a miracle that she survived it. She must have had an overwhelming mental strength to overcome all these obstacles because it's just inconceivable to me what strength she shows next. Keep in mind, we're painting the picture here, and I don't want to get too graphic, but she is not in a good way, and she's at the bottom of a 30-foot cliff. Mary, in that same A&E interview, says that she grew incredibly cold and sleepy, which would make sense given the amount of blood loss that she is suffering. She then says, I just kept hearing a voice saying, you can't go to sleep. He's going to do this to someone else, and you can't let that happen. I have goosebumps. So what does this little brave 15-year-old do? She put her arms into the dirt because the blood would mix with the dirt and create mud, something to absorb the blood and hopefully stop the loss. But Even the pain of doing that, I cannot fathom. So she packed her wounds with mud. That was a mixture of dirt and the blood from her injuries. She then started crawling without any hands back up the cliff. Oh my gosh, this girl is like superwoman. Now keep in mind, I told you that this happened in the morning. She did not get to the top of that 30-foot cliff until night. So all day she is working on getting up this cliff. And then she doesn't just sit down and wait. Nope. She has to get to the road. <sighs> I'm just in awe of her. So it's now dark, and it's completely dark because she was on this rural road. Only thing lighting her way is the moon. And Mary continues walking, following the sounds of traffic until she reaches a highway. The next morning, 
Oh my gosh. How is she still going? She has now spent 24 hours in peril trying to get herself to safety, which is just, I, I've said it probably five times and I'm not going to edit it out. It's unfathomable how she was able to mm -hmm. do this. But it's the next morning before she sees the first car, 24 hours since this all started. And to give you a sense of how badly injured she was at this point, they estimate that it took her all night to walk three miles. Oh, that's not that far, and it shouldn't take all night, but the conditions of her body. Right. Once again, she's like built a different breed, this little hero we have, who I already love, and I hope we have a positive ending, but I'll be patient. I'll wait. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a red sports car drives by. Hallelujah, she's thinking, right? Two men are driving it. They go past her, and she kind of yells out the best she can for help. But in Mary's own words, think about it. I have no hands. I am covered from head to toe in blood, and I look like something from a Fright Night movie. The boys kept driving on. And I hate to say this because we all want to think that we would jump to someone's aid, but this gave me a little pause when she described it that way. And I had to sit with myself for a minute and be like, okay, would I, I mean, I certainly would call 911. 100%. But would I pull over and have this person get in my car when I'm also thinking who's behind them, who did this, what did this to them? That's my thing is seeing that I would wonder what's in those woods. It's a tough position to be in. I love that you're like, hopefully, you know, we all would. But at the end of the day, we're all humans. We have human emotions. We have hesitations. Definitely call 911. It would be terrible. The only thing I'm picturing is that girl from the grunge, basically, standing mm -hmm. in the middle of the road. And I don't want to cheapen her experience by doing that. It's just where my brain visually went to. And would I stop to pick her up? I don't know. And she described it like that. Like she was very self-aware of how probably scary she looked. She kind of giggled about it in the interview. She yeah. just kind of gave off the impression of like, of course they didn't stop for me. I was terrifying looking. <laughs> so hopefully... We would, but at least I can say 100% confidently, I would at least get them help. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so the first car passes her by, and does she give up? Not our little fighter. Mary just keeps on walking, but this time she changes her approach. She's going to walk dead center in the middle of the road, so traffic coming either way is going to see her. Now, she's taken all day to climb a 30-foot cliff and all night walk to find a highway, and now the first car refuses to pick her up. And that doesn't even deter A second car pulls up. A couple on their honeymoon, which I have to giggle about. They had gotten lost. And they just stumble past her. And could you imagine what was going through these people's heads? They're going from one no. moment like, Jimmy, you, you missed the turn, Jimmy. We're supposed <laughs> to be at the hotel an hour ago, right? And then all of a sudden they're like, uh... What is that? They, they will never forget the honeymoon. I'm sure they haven't. Please tell me that they pick her up. Thankfully, they did stop. They okay. got Mary into their vehicle, laid her down. The wife was putting pressure on her wounds, and she says the last thing she remembers was the truck tires peeling out as they sped her into town because that's the point her body just finally went unconscious. Mary was airlifted to the nearest hospital. And I have to go back to what you said about this couple and just take a little sidebar because I bet you any amount of money, and I kept thinking about this while I was doing the research, that couple has never forgotten their wedding anniversary. Not once. Never. Not <laughs> one time. Imagine going home and the parents are like, so how was it? And they're like, it was good. But then this thing happened. Like, unbelievable. Yeah, they're on their way to their honeymoon adventure. 
But I hope they had a long, happy marriage because those are some good Samaritans right they there. They absolutely are. But if that doesn't get your husband to remember your anniversary, absolutely nothing <laughs> will. Give up. Write the date down. Tattoo it on him. That's such a good point. In the hospital, it was determined that Mary had lost over half the blood in her body. And what about the other half? She was septic to a toxic level, but somehow, and they cannot explain how, she just kind of chose to survive. And this just goes to show that sometimes the human desire to live can basically overcome the most intense medical circumstances. But not only that, it was said by police later that Mary refused rest until she could give a full witness statement and wow. completing a composite sketch of Larry before she would agree to get rest. She is an incredible 15-year-old. She's an incredible human. I don't even know yeah. if she's fully human. This is just amazing to me. It took the police 10 days to track down and arrest Larry. Now, here is where you're going to lose it because we're going to take a bad detour here and we're really going to hate this Larry guy. This asshat had the gall to say that he didn't attack Mary. He had picked up two other hitchhikers that day along with her in Berkeley, and the other two hitchhikers were named Pedro and Larry. Oh well, my that's gosh. funny, Larry. So she says a guy named Larry did this to her, and now you invent another hitchhiker with your same name. Ugh. He then told police they all stopped at a bar, had some drinks, and then they each took turns paying for sex with Mary because she was, quote, a cheap whore. Now, those are his words, not mine. And I also want to point out there is no evidence, not that it would matter, that right. Mary was a sex worker at all. She was just a teen that ran away from home. He then said that he dropped them off somewhere, and when he did, Mary was completely fine. Well, Larry, that's a little sus because when they did a warrant on his house, they found Mary's cigarettes and remnants of her burned clothing that he tried to discard. Because again, remember, he threw off that cliff naked. Oh, oh, and he removed the carpet from the back of his van and completely cleaned it out just days after Mary was attacked. So yeah, no one was buying his BS. No, looking real suspicious there, Laura. I'm calling you Lauren. <laughs> We're not even on a nickname level anymore, eh? Ugh. Yeah, it's awful. I just had to call him Larry because he threw another Larry into the mix. But it was not until six months later, obviously they needed their star witness to have some time to recover from her injuries. She was fitted for new prosthetic arms, and Mary would see her attacker face-to-face -face on the witness stand. Imagine Larry. Oh, he's shitting his pants for sure. He's like, uh. He has to be. I mean, I am just picturing him not necessarily in court, but he's at home. He thinks he's covered up this murder. He had to have thought that this girl was going to die. 100%. And then she's like, nope, I got some bionic arms and I'm about to go testify against you. I can't even imagine what was going through his head and he deserved every nervous feeling he got. She sat only a few feet from her attacker and accounted everything that happened that day. As she came down from the witness stand, however, she walked right past Larry and he had the audacity to say to her, if it's the last thing I do, I will finish the job. Oh my gosh. That's, that's scary. We talked in episode one to my sister who had to testify and that isn't someone that came after her personally how difficult it was. So to imagine this girl who's now 16 having to testify and then he says that to her and puts that fear in her, like, Larry, who who gave you the right 
to do any of this, but then to add on to it with that kind of instilled fear. I, I hate Larry. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Well, he was found guilty on all charges, no shock there, attempted murder, kidnapping, mutilation of a body part, forcible rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation. I wish, Annie, that I was going to say, and then he died in jail and uh-huh. or on death row or something. Nope. Don't tell me. He was only charged with Ugh. 14 years. In California at the time, attempted murder only carried a maximum sentence of 10 years And get this, rape had a maximum of two years. So all of these things that he did to her combined, they could only charge him with 14 years. Now, here is something I have never understood, and I am getting heated. My arms are flying about. Just because someone is not successful in their clear plan to murder someone, how does that make it any better than a actualized murder? No, and to... What he said to her is, I will make sure I finish the job I started. That's terrifying to know he got 14 years. Because at that point, she would be 30. I'm not great at math, but yeah, she's 16 at the time of trial. That's really soon for him to get out. Well, not only that, but let's give credit where it's due. Mary did not survive because Larry stopped in the middle of this attack and called 911. Such a good point. He didn't have remorse during any of this. She, out of sheer determination and some sort of like godly good karma, she was able to overcome all of these medical impossibilities. And somehow because she did that, he's rewarded with a lighter sentence. Like to make that make sense. Please. That's such a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And he definitely thought he finished the job like the first time around. So that's insane. And then if we want to talk about mental health after this, it's going to take a lot longer than 14 years to overcome that type of trauma. I mean, it just just makes me so mad because he's getting credit for her bravery. And that's 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 BS. Mm -hmm. For what it's worth, I'm going to calm down. Take a little breath here. The judge agreed with me. He said during sentencing, if I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. But he couldn't. Mary went on to win a civil lawsuit against Larry for pain and suffering. $2.56 million, which I say, give it all to Mary. The problem with the civil lawsuit, she never got a dime. Because Larry... I was going to ask, did Larry have the money? He didn't have the money and he was in jail. So how is he going to pay this money? But alas, it actually gets worse, if you can believe this. During this time, he's in California locked up. California was having a lot of trouble with overpopulation, overcrowding in their jails. So they came up with some interesting tactics to help solve that problem. One of which was things that we're familiar with, getting paroled early for good behavior, etc., expressing remorse, you know, showing that you've actually Mm -hmm. changed in some way. But they also implemented a work program, which allowed prisoners to work. And every day they worked, one day came off their sentence. Because he had, quote unquote, good behavior, and he worked as a teacher, I guess. I, I didn't even care to look into what he was teaching because he's, he's just the worst. Um, he got out just shy of eight years. Oh, I've said this before. I'm all for reformation. I'm all for second chances. But when there is crimes that are so gruesome and so terrible, one, parole should not even be on the table. He also never once expressed remorse for this crime. He kept blaming her for it. 
So that doesn't really correlate with early parole, in my opinion. 14 years was not long enough, and seven years to eight years, it's, it's reported differently in different articles. But either way, that was not enough time. No, it's not enough time at all. Now, this part is actually laughable because I've never heard about this in a case, and you'll have to tell me if you have. Larry was paroled to Contra Costa County, California. That's a lot of alliteration. That's a lot of C's there. So pardon me if I pronounce that wrong. <laughs> but the people living there were like, yeah, no, I, I don't really want Larry to be my neighbor. We don't want the guy that goes around raping and chopping people's arms off living in our cute little cul-de-sac. And I don't blame them. In fact, no surrounding town would accept Larry. According to Time magazine, it's quoted, as authorities attempted to settle him in one Bay Area town after another, angry crowds and Tampa's chapter of the Guardian Angels, which I had to look up what they are as a volunteer service with the goal of unarmed crime prevention. So they lead a lot of protests, things like that. They led protests, screamed, picketed, and eventually prevailed. In Rodeo, about 25 miles northeast of San Francisco, a crowd of approximately 500 local protesters Whoa. were up in arms and forced officers to move him under armed guard from a hotel room. Authorities tried housing him across the street from the city hall, but that was met with protests and failed too. He was removed from one apartment in Contra Costa County in a bulletproof vest after 400 residents surrounded the building in protest after a decision to place him there permanently. The governor then ordered Singleton, or Larry as I've been calling him, to be placed in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin Prison for the duration <laughs> of his one-year probation. Don't get me started on the one-year probation, but I had never even heard that this was a thing or an option. I love these people for being like, uh-uh, get out. Go on, get. Like, they don't want him there. They didn't don't blame cause him. him harm, but they made their point known that they did not agree with the fact that this guy was being let out so early. And he ended up right back on prison grounds, just slightly <laughs> outside of it in a trailer. I, I, I've just never heard of that being done before. So I haven't either. Good job of those California people. Mary went through extensive therapy, both mentally and physically, to regain somewhat of a normal life. She had two sons and was married, but it was always plain in the back of her mind what happens when this man gets released. The marriage certificate had to be sealed to hide her last name. She didn't speak to the media anymore as like the years got closer to his potentially getting out. And she only allowed a few media people to attend her wedding as long as they didn't disclose where she had been living details about her children, their names, etc. She was living in fear that this man who attacked her, who has basically become her own personal boogeyman from inside a jail, is going to come out and do what he said he was going to do, which is finish the job. And now she has two boys that she has to protect as well. That's such a scary thought. I cannot imagine how many nights she just laid in bed, couldn't sleep, listening to every crack and every crease and just wondering... What's going to happen? That's haunting. And that's something that I don't think even I think about all that often when you hear the number of years someone's sentenced. Well, what about those people that he hurt? They're just stuck in that. They're stuck mm -hmm. waiting. It's like they're in purgatory while he's in prison. And that's not fair. Good way to put it, though. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Ugh, it's awful. So did the seven years in jail reform Larry? Annie, any guesses? No. No. After a year of his probation, he went back to his home state of Florida. Now, I am going to giggle at this a little bit because Larry's an idiot. 
1990, he was convicted of theft twice. He served a 60-day sentence for stealing a $10 disposable camera. What? Like, Larry, you don't need pictures that bad. No. And then he really needed a hat because that winter he received a two-year prison term for stealing a $3 hat from Walmart. Now, I get it. I don't like my ears cold either, but I don't think a $3 hat is worth a two-year sentence. Before his sentencing for the latter crime, he described himself to the judge as, quote, a confused, muddle-headed old man, end quote. Um, Larry, I have a lot more choice words for you than muddle-headed old man. Be truthful, Larry. You're a lot more than that. Come on. So did the prison term for the hat and the disposable camera change him? No. Wow, you're really on a good roll. (laughs) 69-year-old Larry is now living in Florida, still drinking heavily, and living as a recluse. Now, I will say it was reported that he was really struggling with depression, which I'm not even going to go into it, but he did try to take his own life. He was unsuccessful as a neighbor intervened. That neighbor would later say that he wished he hadn't because then Larry wouldn't have the opportunity just a few days later to take his last victim. Oh, my gosh. Roxanne Hayes was 31. She had three children at the time, and by all accounts, despite growing up in a wildly abusive home, Roxanne was a loving and caring mother. She was trying to provide the best she could for her children. Roxanne had turned to sex work in order to provide for her children, and unfortunately, on the 19th of February, 1997, Larry picked up Roxanne for sex work. He brought her back to his house, but around 6 p.m. that evening, a neighbor came by Larry's home. This neighbor just wanted to stop by because he wanted to potentially work on a house renovation and needed Larry's help. Probably wasn't aware of Larry's background, I'm assuming. So he peeks in the window because he's hearing a commotion going on, and he saw a 69-year-old naked Larry through the window beating and strangling Roxanne. (gasps) Despite the neighbor banging on the door and window, Larry wouldn't stop. The neighbor later reported he actually turned, looked right to the neighbor's eyes, turned back around and continued. So he didn't care who saw him. The neighbor called the police and unfortunately by the time the police arrived, Roxanne had succumbed to her wounds. She had been beaten, stabbed, and choked by Larry. I do want to point out that Roxanne and Mary have very similar builds. Remember what the age you said that she would be around the time of his release? 30-ish. And Mary was 31. And I can't help but wonder, since Mary had gone into hiding and took really drastic measures to protect herself, if this was maybe his way as he was getting older, kind of succumbing to his age and alcohol issues, if this was maybe his way of finishing the job like he always said he was going to by kind of having a replacement in Roxanne. It makes sense. I didn't see any sources that said that. I just happened to see both of these women's pictures and thought, wait a minute, Uh there's a lot of similarities here. Mary, who had basically been in hiding, again decides to be an absolute badass, comes out of hiding and flies down to Florida to again testify against Larry. I mean, this poor woman has had to do this twice now. Larry finally was sentenced to death, but died December 28, 2001, of cancer. This is where we're going to take a turn and things are going to get a little bit better because, obviously, people were pissed. Rightfully so. I mean, eight years for what he did to Mary, for him to turn around and do it to someone else. Unacceptable. It proved they were all right that this was not someone that should have been released. The outrage at Larry's sentence resulted in legislation being passed. This was hugely supported by Mary Vincent, 
which prevented the early release of offenders who have committed a crime in which torture is used. In 1987, Singleton's parole led to the passage of California's Singleton's Bill. Even though they passed legislation, even though it's this mm-hmm. guy's name that the legislation is being passed, they can't retroactively like add on to his sentence. Okay, makes That's sense. That's not possible, unfortunately. But the Singleton Bill, which eliminates the possibility of early release to those who have been involved in a crime involving torture, and the minimum year sentence was increased to 25 years at the minimum. So, Okay, so some progress. Absolutely. And in a blurred bylines.com article by Sherry Rose, she said that in 1998, Vincent, which is Mary, went to Washington, D.C. to testify in favor of a congressional bill called the No Second Chances for Murderers, Rapists, or Child Molesters Act. I think we can all figure out what they were hoping to do there. While appearing in front of members of Congress, Vincent shared details of her attack and how Singleton's lenient sentence allowed him to kill Roxanne Hayes nearly 20 years later. She concluded with this. I have now obtained the long overdue psychological counseling to help me get over my nightmares and my fear. Yet sometimes I still feel like that confused 15-year-old runaway trapped in the body of a 35-year-old mother of two. No one should ever have to go through what I went through or what the children of Roxanne Hayes will go through without their mother. Unfortunately, this bill was never passed by Congress. I am happy to report that Mary went on to speak in interviews and public speaking engagements to bring awareness not only to her story, but to the injustice of our judicial system. She currently works as an artist. Remember, she has no arms. So she wow. uses prosthetics and actually she's kind of known for like tinkering about and, and modifying her prosthetics to like allow her to go bowling. And she just kind of makes it work for her but she works as an artist and she typically depicts heroic women almost in sort of like an action figure way but the badass woman is now painting badass women and we love that for her she is such a badass oh my gosh that's amazing right and i want to point out that while i'm so happy that mary survived and went on to help convict her attacker for a first and second time and bravely shared her story and aided in getting legislation passed that is of course, going to help people in the future. Roxanne was murdered by a man that should have never gotten the opportunity to ever come across her path in the first place. And that is just one of the many things that's so heartbreaking in this case. But mm-hmm. we got to do like a, a clap for Mary. I don't know if that's going to blow out your guys' ears, but holy cow. And that's why I had to cover this because the whole time I was reading it, I'm going, there's no way she's going to survive this. And then I happened upon that A&E episode and saw her talk. And I'm going to link it in the show notes, guys. It's kind of difficult to follow because there's other people being interviewed about their experiences of survival, but all of them are worth listening to, obviously. But to hear her speak is pretty profound, to say the least. I'm going to go watch that. And I think just to describe her like relentless, unstoppable, determined, fearless, the best traits she has them all and she never gave up and i just admire her for that it's amazing to me that is not only a story of just survival but overcoming hurdles her mental and physical health had to go through after that i can't fathom so you know i'm gonna stop bitching about a little bit of back pain now that definitely puts things in perspective when you start you know complaining about how bad things are and then you read this story and go oh never mind doing great amen to that doing great well, as always, our Scary Squad, we will be back next week or maybe a little sooner. Until then. 